All right, so this morning we are in Acts chapter 11, and we're getting into the meat of the book of Acts. Uh, meat in term, this is a, more of a personal comment. I, when we start getting into the travels of Paul and some of the other stories uh, up through about chapter 21, 22, uh, we are kind of in the heart of the story of Acts, and there's uh, just a lot of interesting things that are going on that we will uh, deal with uh, from a textual point of view, the historic point of view, the geographical aspects um, of, of the, the book of Acts, uh, and the, uh, uh, of course, the, the expansion of the gospel as it begins to go out. So we have covered the, uh, in chapter 11, we, we came down through uh, verse 18, and Peter's defense to the Jews in Jerusalem about his trip to Cornelius at Caesarea and all that took place there. And he successfully defended uh, himself, and they, they, uh, they accepted what he said. Um, I think I, we, we concluded on the, uh, what, what uh, verse 18 of chapter 11 says, when they heard these things, all that being Peter's description of how the Spirit of God was upon these Gentiles, just as it had been with the Jews, uh, at the original description and the start of the church in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost, and therefore the Gentiles were in. Gentiles are part of the church. And they spoke in tongues and a sign from God basically setting, saying, now let's go forward with this. And when they heard these things, verse 18, they became silent. And they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. And I like, uh, I think I gave you the quote, uh, uh, I can't take this one as uh, my own, but it comes from F.F. F. Bruce, who um, was a Scottish commentator, wrote a, a number of commentaries, but his commentary on Acts is very good. And he said at this point, uh, on page 236, for those of you that like attribution completely, their criticism ceased, their worship began. Their criticism ceased, their worship began. And I think that's a pretty good point to just to kind of start with this morning in terms of how we, uh, how, how, the, how a church should be, how a group of people in the, uh, dealing with spiritual issues, uh, big theological matters, uh, in this case the Gentiles coming into the church, but in our day whatever it might be, the uh, coming to a fuller understanding of the nature of God, the divinity of Christ. Uh, once you, you settle and you establish teaching and doctrine, uh, then it's, it's time to move to the weightier matters of the law. And those deal with the interpersonal matters of love and uh, relationships um, and the worship of God based on truth. And so these Jews, their, their criticism stopped. When our criticism can stop, or at least get tamped down to a level where we can um, you know, have time to focus on bigger issues, then our worship of God can begin. So I like that quote, and I think it typifies, not only explains where the church in Jerusalem was for that moment, but gives us something to, to think about for our own contemporary issues and church life um, to, to work for. And that is to camp down to criticism, deal with legitimate issues, but move to worship, move to, the, move to application of the truth, the depth of truth in our lives. And that's where doctrine, teaching, and understanding should ultimately take us. And so the scene shifts now here in verse 19 of chapter 11. And we are uh, now at a focus upon 
the, the thread of the story at, at the city of Antioch. And uh, we're going to spend a bit of time on this and uh, kind of go back and forth in the verses and pick up a thread from earlier chapters and jump ahead a little bit because I kind of want to tell this story um, as it is told by Luke, but he chops it up uh, over several chapters. And it's a story of the, the church at Antioch and what happened there. Uh, this is kind of my, my term in terms of um, examining the story of Antioch, which has been a fascination of mine for a number of years, and trying to understand it, uh, again, for application to us today in the church in our efforts to fulfill our mission, which is to preach the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God to all the nations as a witness, making disciples and caring for those disciples. And so what happened here is a fascinating story that, at least in my earlier years before I started teaching Acts, I didn't really focus on, and I don't recall hearing too much about it, but it's a part of the story here uh, in, the, in the book of Acts. And so let's pick it up here at verse 19. Because Luke shifts the scene, he said, now. So that's a sign that he's going to a different perspective. Those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. All right? So the, the scene shifts. Now, let's go back to chapter 8. Uh, hold your place here, turn back to chapter 8, just to pick up the thread of this, um, where it tells us what happened after the death of Stephen. There was a scattering, if we remember, of the disciples. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now Paul was consenting to his death, Stephen's death. At that time a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So there was a scattering that began to take place. The apostles uh, stay, it says, uh, they, they stay, it seems, in Jerusalem by the implication here, but there is, a, there is a scattering. Stephen's buried. We moved into the story of Philip and his trip down to Samaria, and then later with the, the Ethiopian eunuch. And so uh, th there's a scattering that takes place. So when we come back to chapter 11 and verse 19, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen. So here's where the connection is made, where Luke now picks up that thread from uh, 8.1. Uh, they traveled, he, he expands it. They'd gone as far as Samaria, but now he, tells, he adds more dimension, more understanding to the scattering that took place. And remember, except the apostles which tells us that this scattering were, was essentially disciples. We would, in our terminology, I think have to say, uh, unordained, non-ministerial non uh, disciples who, were, who, who left. They traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. Now, uh, the map that we have on the board, and for those watching online, uh, we have a copy of this map, I think, for you to, to download or to access off of our website as well. You will see at least Jerusalem and Samaria down at the bottom, the island of Cyprus up uh, right in the uh, 
middle of the Mediterranean there, at least this part of the, the map anyway. And Phoenicia is on the, along the coast north of Samaria, going up toward Syria and up toward Antioch and into what we then, uh, the regions of Syria and over into Cilicia, Tarsus there, and that puts you into Asia Minor, um, to modern-day Turkey. And so this begins to at least give you a geographic perspective of the extent of the scattering, and, and it is significant at this time. Some of the men were from Cyprus, which has already been identified, and from Cyrene. A Cyrene on the map is uh, down in the lower left-hand corner along the North African coast. Um, and so there were some from Cyrene who were a part of this. Luke doesn't tell us all the details as to um, who they were, um, just where they came from. And so there becomes this movement toward Antioch. And they came to Antioch, it says in verse 20, spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And so there's, uh, they, they go to Antioch, and they preach the Lord Jesus. So they are preaching the gospel. How do they do that? Well, there were synagogues in Antioch, in the city of Antioch, and there were, it was a large city, well over uh, a quarter million people by most estimates, uh, which was quite large for the ancient world. It's not an insignificant uh, city even today, but um, quite large. And so they, they would have found people to engage Jews in a synagogue, people in a marketplace, people in, in public gatherings, which would have been done more to, in that age than what we would consider today. You and I don't go into Walmart and start preaching uh, the gospel to people, do we? Um, we? We are, I mean, we have a church culture where we don't do that. Let's just, you know, call it what it is. And I'm not saying we should, that's not my point, but it was different then. This is what they, they, they had no qualms engaging people uh, where they met them and talking about God, talking about faith, and in this case, preaching the, the Lord Jesus. And so um, this, uh, this takes place here. Now, let me, let's think for a moment about the city of Antioch and what it was. Um, we have already talked about this when we were uh, back in book in Daniel, in chapter 11 especially of, of Daniel. It, what, it, if I were to ask you, uh, who's the city named after? Who would you immediately bring to mind? Antiochus. And, of course, the big figure of Daniel is Antiochus Epiphanes, who was uh, technically Antiochus IV uh, in a long line of rulers, Greek rulers, named um, Antiochus or the Antiochene family. And they put their name on this city and other cities throughout the region. Uh, when we get to chapter 13, we're going to see the Apostle Paul in what is called Antioch of Pisidia. P-S-I-D-I-A. We'll talk more about that. That's another Antioch. Uh, this, is at, uh, this is Antioch on the Orontes, on, on the Orontes. The Orontes is a river that runs through the city of Antioch. And so we'll call this the Antioch of Syria. It's sometimes called Antioch of Syria or Antioch on the Orontes, on the Orontes River. To distinguish it from all the other Antiochs, the Antiochians were not bashful, and if they put the time and money into building a city, they wanted their 
uh, brand on it. And it did, and they, 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 they had several Antiochs throughout the ancient world. Now this, is, keep in mind, is the, the Greek dynasty started by which general of Alexander the Great? Anybody know that name real quick? Seleucus. So it's the Seleucid dynasty, and it comes down to all these various Antiochenes, and the fourth being the, the big guy, Antiochus Epiphanes. It was a huge center, not only as a capital of the Antiochenes at this point, it was Antiochus Epiphanes' main capital. When he was running back and forth to Egypt, causing mayhem down in Jerusalem, uh, he, you know, he would always go back to his capital here at Antioch. And it was a Greek city, which tells us a number of things. I mean, it was, a, it was built on a Greek model, it had a theater, it had a hippodrome, it had a stadium. It had a huge palace for the, uh, the rulers there, and uh, large colonnaded streets. Um, the, the modern name of Antioch is Antakya. Uh, I went there last April, a year ago, on a tour, and uh, went down into that, that part of, uh, of Turkey. It is right down in the southeast part of Turkey today, and uh, five years ago I couldn't have gone there because ISIS was in that territory, and the Turks would not take, let tourists go down there. But the Turkish army went in there and cleared out the ISIS um, uh, Islamic uh, people, and it's now safe uh, to, to go there. So we went there, and hopefully we can take a tour group there sometime in the future uh, on a kind of a uh, journey through the first travels of the Apostle Paul. That's what my, the tour was that I had in April. Uh, along through the, the first journey of Paul, which is fascinating, and we're getting into that first journey, so I'll, I'll tell you a bit about that, and we'll, at least by next class, or a couple of classes, probably put some slides up there, but uh, today it's modern day in Tokyo. But go back to the ancient world, uh, here's, here's something to understand. Under Antiochus IV, or Epiphanes, is, remember what happened in Jerusalem that set up the rebellion of the Maccabees, and eventually, and then Antiochus going in, desecrating the altar with the abomination of desolation, and we had that several years of Maccabean war culminating with an expulsion of the Greeks from Jerusalem and uh, the um, cleansing of the temple and, and all of that episode right there. But what, precipit what precipitated the rebellion and in that mix of, of was the Greek culture from Antioch coming down to Jerusalem. And the Jews in Jerusalem wanting to become Greek. I told you how extreme some of the males were to become Greek by reversing their circumcision. But what else happened was the Greeks built, uh, in Jerusalem, they built something that we, we know well about called a gymnasium. from which we have a gymnasium where we play volleyball, basketball, and whatever, but it's a Greek word. And any self-respecting Greek city in that age had a gymnasium. It's where everybody worked out, but it was more than that. It was where the Greek worldview was passed on, the, the Greek view of life. And the Greek view of life was that man was at the center of the universe, the human form, the human, the individual. That's important to understand because this is what led to the problems in Jerusalem 
Enter, they built a gymnasium right in Jerusalem, not too far from where the, the temple was. And Jewish youths wanted to go there after 5 o'clock, play volleyball. But they played volleyball naked. And they threw the discus and they did all the things that Greeks did back then as part of you know, their athletics, threw the javelin that you see in all the carvings and everything. But they also passed along educationally the idea of the human form, secular, secular humanism, that man's the center of the universe. The Jewish point of view, long held, essentially was that who's the center? Who would be the center of the, the Jewish point of view? God. God is the center. And man worships God. But the Greeks had it all backwards. And so with that worldview coming in, you got a clash. You got a clash in Jerusalem. And this is what led to the division among the Jews that Antiochus Epiphanes exacerbated and leveraged, uh, even to the point of ultimately desecrating the temple and creating the Maccabean revolt and all of those problems there. But this goes on, that I, this goes on, and it's very prevalent in the message to the seven churches in Revelation and the conflict that's going on in the first century A.D. In the, uh, for the, the church. When we go to Sardis here in the, the tour that I'm leading to Sardis, we're going to see in Sardis a very large synagogue built right next to a Greek gymnasium in the city of Sardis, and it raises all kinds of questions. Why? Why did the Greeks, why did the Jews build this big synagogue so close to a Greek gymnasium when you have a cl clash of cultures there? But it at least gives you a point of illustration to talk about what the problem was and to the message to, to Sardis and to all the churches then, and is still a part of the, the conflict that we deal with in the church, church today. But when we bring this back now to what we're reading here in Acts, now we see it's not so much the Jewish nation as it is the church that is dealing with these disciples who have gone down to Antioch, preached the Lord, and all of a sudden you got a church, Bible study, fellowship group, whatever, we, whatever they had going, they had something happening there. Because it tells us that the Lord, the hand, verse 21, uh, 21, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Word comes to Jerusalem somehow. The communication was pretty good back then. The church in Jerusalem hears about this. And they want to know what's going on. And part of that, you would have to, I'm reading into it, I'm inferring, would go back less than 200 years to what happened with the Greek effort to bring their culture into Jerusalem. Now the church is taking the church culture to Antioch. And so I'm sure some of the church are differing ideas. What's going on? Well, we need to check into this. Well, what's going on is this. It's Matthew 16, 18. It's Matthew 16, 18. The church that Jesus built, He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell or Hades will not prevail against it. When we talked about the doctrine of the church, I explained to you that that teaching, I mean, that really, uh, I think a prime way to understand what Jesus is saying to the church is, you're going to be on the offensive. You're going to batter down the gates of hell. And this is, I think, an example of where 
the disciples went to Antioch and they made inroads. Many believed. Now, they didn't convert the whole city, but they had a presence there. And something was happening in Antioch, and it was done by disciples scattered after, after uh, the time of uh, Stephen's death. So this is, this is a significant step out that, that is happening here as, as we look at this. And so, what do they do? Let's look at verse 22. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. After a period of time, they hear about it, they want to check it out. They want to know what's going on. Jerusalem, of course, is, uh, if you will, it's, it's where it all began. It is, would be the largest gathering of disciples uh, at this time. And it's, you know, you've got James, the brother of Christ there that we'll see in chapter 15, who seems to be the, the pastor of the church, the leading elder, and um, a base for everyone else. Everything eventually comes back to Jerusalem, as we will see in the story of Acts. Paul goes back. Uh, Peter uh, it will be there, and then he, he goes out and does his thing, and no doubt the other apostles cycle back through there. And uh, so I hesitate to, let's just call the Jerusalem as the home office church. All right, I don't like to use the term, we don't use the term headquarters in United so much in our culture today, but it, it's a home office church, let's just put it that way, where um, things um, are, are looked into. So what, they, what did they do? They sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. This is an interesting situation, too. They send, they send Barnabas to go. How did they choose Barnabas? Luke doesn't tell us. Remember Barnabas? He's the one from Cyprus, the disciple earlier in the story of Acts, who sold his belongings, moved to Jerusalem, gave you know, a lot to the church, which kind of sets up the story of um, Ananias and Sapphira uh, in the next few uh, verses. Uh, Barnabas is a disciple, and remember, Barnabas was the one who welcomed the apostle, or Paul, we won't call him the apostle necessarily at that time. He welcomes Saul, Paul, into the church at Jerusalem after his road to Damascus conversion, when nobody else, it seems, would go across the, the hall and welcome this former tormentor into their fellowship. He takes him, this Barnabas. He's a remarkable man that we're... Um, we're not told that much about, um, but when he does appear, he, he, he makes the right decisions. He does the right thing. He has the courage to go and welcome Paul into the church. He's not afraid of Paul, and he vouches for him, introduces him around. The name Barnabas means son of encouragement. Would that we had uh, a number of Barnabases in our midst at any given time in the church, in any congregation. Members who gave encouragement. I mean, I've, I've had those, I hope all of you have had somebody in the church, older member, whatever it might be in your congregation that you can look back and say, that person made a difference in my life. For me, it was my, uh, one of my early pastors, probably my first pastor that I had, um, a man named uh, Bob Steep. I usually like to mention his name sometimes just to keep a name from the past alive, but he was very influential in my uh, teen years and encouraged all of us in the, as young adults in our church long before we had any type of formal youth program or young adult program in the Worldwide Church of God at that time. We didn't. I mean, but he organized this, had activities for us, let us organize church activities. 
When I got turned down for Ambassador College, the first time I ever applied, and I thought I was headed for the lake of fire and, you know, going to be kicked out of the church, he came across the hall the next Sabbath, found me, and because he'd heard, because I was hiding in the back of the, uh, on that day, I was ashamed, and he walked across the hall, found me, and put his arm around me and encouraged me to try again. He said, don't worry about it. He said, you know, you're on a setting on a, I remember the words. He said, you're setting on a gold mine right now. You did, you'd get in there and dig, which I did. And I went to a local university for a year, uh, improved my grades, which were a problem at the time, applied a second time, and got accepted to ambassador. And, but without that moment, and it was a moment in church on a Sabbath when he came across and encouraged me, I, I don't know. I was, I was pretty down because two other friends got accepted that year, and they were going to be leaving me behind. And um, every congregation needs somebody to encourage, a, a grouping of people. Um, and so it, where you can be that, do it. Barnabas is that type of person. They, they picked the right man to go down to Antioch in what could be a dicey situation to, in, in a sense, check it out. So he goes as an emissary, and he goes, goes down there, and let's read what it says. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged, there's that word again, encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. They picked the right man. Had they picked someone with perhaps a bit more stickler for detail, process, uh, legal, a legalist, whatever, who would, would say, whoa, what are you guys doing? Did you fill this form out in triplicate? Did you pass it up through the administration? Did the Council of Elders approve this? Well, no, they didn't. These people, these disciples... They acted on the, the uh, principle that it was easier to get forgiveness than permission. Easier to get forgiveness than permission. You might want to remember that one. There are times when it's, you go ahead and act. Do something, as long as it's legal, as long as it's godly, not illegal, not breaking any of the commandments, but you might find yourself in certain situations where a decision has to be made. You take an action. You may not work it up back through all the process. You've got to be wise. You've got to be smart. Uh, but these disciples, they just took Acts 1-8 literally and said that you're going to be witnesses of me, Christ said. And so they got up there and they were witnesses of Christ. And God blessed that. Barnabas sees it. Now he gives them permission. So he didn't, they didn't have to have forgiveness but, you know, um, sometimes it's, it's just, you know, go ahead and act. I've, I've done that a few times uh, in my career, and, uh, but you have to be careful. So don't, don't, if, you, if you don't do it wisely in the future, don't call me or, or text me that I got you in trouble. Uh, you got to follow through on all these. So remember that <laughs> uh, and apply that, prop apply that properly. But... Barnabas comes down, and notice, here's where we have really the best explanation and, or description of his character, a good man full of the Holy Spirit, 
And he said, but he gave them permission, hey, what you're doing is of God. Now, how did he see that? He probably talked to everybody. What, how, did, how did this happen? What did you talk about? He interviewed some of the Greek Gentile converts from this city, some of the Jewish converts probably. And after a number of interviews, he came to his conclusion, and he saw that God was, was working there. Now, he also saw something else, and it's this, that there was, there was a work God was doing in Antioch. Because in verse 25, Barnabas then departed from Tars for Tarsus to seek Saul. This is Paul. Later we'll, we'll talk about why it becomes Paul. But he departs for Tarsus. If you look at the map and you see where Antioch is, Antioch, of course, is right here, and Tarsus is right here. Tarsus is Paul's hometown that he later talks about. Um, he was a citizen, a Roman citizen of Tarsus, uh, no no mean town, no insignificant town. Uh, you should know where Paul came from and know that Tarsus is, um, is that town or that, 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 uh, that city. Paul, remember, had gone there about 10 years earlier from this, this time after he, his um, conversion on the road to Damascus. He spends three years running around Arabia down in Petra and all that, this uh, Nabataean kingdom, goes back to Jerusalem, gets or goes back to Damascus, gets hot there, goes to Jerusalem, and stays a short time. They take him down to Caesarea, and he goes back to Tarsus. This happened, you know, three years after his conversion. Ten years about now have passed to, where, to the scene we're in right now. And so uh, with that, uh, Barnabas goes to get Saul over here. What has Saul been doing? for 10 years. We don't know. Uh, he, he, Luke doesn't tell us. This is one of the aspects of, of Luke's um, uh, history and a way of writing history. He doesn't give us all the details of everything. And so he leaves Paul there for 10 years. Now, some think that maybe that Paul just didn't set making tents, that he may have gone out into some of the regions uh, here of what is Galatia, to whom he writes the book of, Gal of Galatians eventually, and he may have preached. That's possible. Again, we don't know from any history, but biblical or otherwise, what he, what he did. But I think it's reasonable to uh, make an assumption that he was probably not totally inactive there. Uh, Barnabas Remember, either remembers that he was over there, or perhaps there's been some communication. I would suspect there's been some communication through that 10-year period, you know, between Paul and Barnabas, who had, remember Barnabas kind of uh, uh, took him under his wing, and there was a relationship there. Uh, so Barnabas knew where to go, that Paul even was still there 10 years later. So he probably, there'd been some communication. Now, he Bar Barnabas either goes down to the port of Seleucia, which is about 15 miles from Antioch down on the coast here, and he takes a boat over there, or he takes a more difficult route through some rugged mountains and walks or rides a donkey or maybe a horse or a cart uh, on a, a long trek through some pretty rugged area. We drove through this area 
after we left Antakya and uh, drove over to Tarsus. And um, fascinating area. Um, there's a, there's a, a NATO airbase right up in here, uh, in Serlik. Uh, any of you that read Tom Clancy novels or uh, you know, stories of that nature will know that Inserlik is a place here in Turkey that has a NATO airbase and used to have nuclear weapons there, but I think that they have been removed, NATO's removed those, but it's still a significant base for operations in the Middle East for NATO and, and run by the Turks now. But um, fascinating area, history-wise, the Battle of Issus happened uh, near there. Uh, we drove actually through the, the uh, battleground, the area where the Battle of Issus with Alexander the Great and the, the Persians took place. So, um, uh, you know, side note, I, I hope that this year we're going, we're doing the seven churches, may do the seven churches again next year, but I hope to put together a tour that would take people through uh, this region, uh, uh, basically the first journey of Paul, and see this area firsthand uh, up close and personal. It's a fascinating area of, of Turkey today. Hopefully in a year or two we might be able to, to do something like that. But uh, Barnabas goes to get Paul because he knows that there's, there's a work to, to be done. Um, in verse 26, he, when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Now, I like this, this um, uh, verse here, verses 25 and 26, because uh, not only does Barnabas bring Saul over when he find, finds him, uh, but they come to Antioch and they for a, a year, one year, 12 months, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. Uh, we're going to, come, we're going to um, come back to this, but what happens within just one year of training under the tutelage of Paul and Barnabas, it results in an evangelistic effort by the church sending Paul and Barnabas out to on what we, is going to be the first journey to these areas here and establishing churches in these Gentile regions. But there's, let's go ahead and jump ahead to that. We'll um, tell, because uh, I want to tell this story here. Um, go to, uh, hold your place here, turn over to chapter 13 and verse 1, and look at that, chapter 13 and verse 1. It says, now in the church that was at Antioch, now the, some time has passed and we're going to talk about what happens in between here, um, but in, in the church that it was Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers named Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, meaning that he was uh, likely black, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And they fasted, they prayed, laid hands on them, and they, they sent them away. This is the beginning, this is the first trip, first evangelizing trip, the books will call it the first missionary trip of the Apostle Paul, but he's with Barnabas. But it takes place a year or more after Barnabas grabs Paul from Tarsus and brings him into Antioch, and they teach. And what I like for us to think about here, and the church to think about, any congregation to think about, 
any of you find yourselves in, in this in coming, coming years. It doesn't take a lot of time to train people. And then it does take a lot of time to train people. I mean, training is a lifetime process. I'm still learning after 50 years. But a concentrated amount of time with the right type of instruction can begin to pr produce disciples who are able then to teach and help take care and do the work of the church. But you've got to have a program. We used to have Spokesman's Club in my day, um, which helped train a whole generation of speakers in the church of God, myself included. I was 17 when I joined my first Spokesman's Club, giving speeches like you guys were doing yesterday here in class. Not, not that we were giving sermonettes at that time, but we were learning the mechanics of there were 12 lesson program built on the Toastmasters International model that the church had that, that time. And I still think is probably the best introduction to speaking that anybody could ever go through and still has value um, even in the church today where it to be um, uh, where, where it's been used and some of our pastors do continue with spokesman's clubs or variations of it. But uh, you can learn, you can do a lot in a short period of time. And that's what Barnabas and Saul did. On the other hand, you find yourselves there. You guys are here for a concentrated one-year course at ABC. Don't sell yourselves short, ladies and gentlemen, or your roles, your future roles within the church. And what you're learning here, what you can take then back to your congregations and utilize in your own personal life and by your example to others, to encourage, to, uh, and, and of faith. Uh, you men, if you are then given opportunity to speak, uh, you're, hopefully your training here will prepare you, as well as your biblical education and knowledge that you've gotten into. Ladies, and you find yourselves in a role in a preteen camp or camp situation, teaching a Bible class at, at church, any other type of roles, uh, all that you have been a part of here in one year can be a catapult to your valued service in your congregation. Don't sell short what you're learning here, what you're experiencing in class, the activities, even the, the late night social hours that you guys uh, get into. Hopefully they're, they're productive enough to want, at one level to uh, um, you know, direct you to God, direct you to the Bible. But Barnabas and Saul tr trained in one year. And a lot of disciples, we read here, where others were being, a group, small group were being considered to go out. God led them to choose Barnabas and Saul, but we don't know what happened to the others and their, their service. We assume that they did other things, and maybe they went other directions eventually. We're just, the, the, the account just focuses on what happened with Barnabas, Barnabas and Saul. And so uh, this, this is what happens um, here in, in, the, in this particular situation. So we go back to the, the, uh, the text here, and the, the, the phrase at the end of verse 26, let's comment on that for a moment. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, this is an interesting phrase. We use the term Christian today and apply it to ourselves, a follower of Christ. Not a difficult um, um, appellation to understand, but here they were first called Christians. Now, the commentators essentially believe that this was, this was done from the outside, not necessarily a term that the church was giving themselves. 
oh, well, what are we going to put on our sign outside the door or outside our hall? You know, we plant, you know, you know, first church, first Christian church in Antioch or Church of Christ in Antioch or whatever. Um, that, it didn't come from the church. It, it more likely it came from the Gentiles. And it wasn't always considered a, a um, complimentary term as the Gentiles looked at this group of Christ followers. Christ followers is a term that um, has become common as people talk about the Christians at this time, the Christ followers. There's only two other places in the New Testament where it's used, and uh, the second time is when Paul is before Festus, and Festus uses it. And then uh, the, the last time is in 1 Peter 4.16 where Peter writes, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him be, not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in his matter. So it doesn't seem to originate with believers, but it eventually post-biblical period, second century and, and all, you begin, it's begun to be seen in some of the other writings of the, the uh, post-apostolic period. Uh, but Luke doesn't give us any indication of this. The other terms we find for the church are Nazarenes, We'll see that. And of course, that's speaking of Christ who was from Nazareth. Um, and it's not always considered that that even was a complimentary term, but, you know, just uh, uh, put upon them by the Jewish community. And then we've already talked about the way. The way as being uh, the other way, um, which maybe a case could be made that the way, this way or whatever is what the church maybe called themselves more than anything else uh, as Luke records it here. So that may have come, this may have come the way, may have come from internally, while it's generally felt Christian or Nazarene comes, came externally. But of course, today we use the term Christian to, we call ourselves Christian. And of course, the wider Christian community does the same thing. And sometimes we have to try to distinguish that uh, as we write about it or talk about it in our own uh, conversation, communication within, within the church uh, at this time. So um, they are uh, first called Christians uh, here in, um, in Antioch. Um, well, let's go on to verse 27 then. In those days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. These were teachers. These were uh, from the community uh, the church community in Antioch, or in, in Jerusalem. And one of them, who was named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit, so he's uh, led by God's Spirit, that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. And the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Now here's another interesting development coming out of the church at Antioch. First of all, there's a prophecy of a, of a famine. Now this is generally understood to um, be a famine that took place in the year, uh, let's say, 45 46 A.D. We can date this. We're given a, a timing and we have external 
references to a famine going on uh, at, at this time um, during the reign of Claudius Caesar um, here. And we, they generally think that this took place, and the bulk of the, or the, the brunt of the famine probably in 46. A famine takes a little bit of time to develop. Um, they, they know that um, there was a low, uh, the, the Nile did not flood as much uh, in the year 40, 44, 45, which cut down the grain supplies coming out of Egypt. Egypt was the granary of the whole ancient world there in the Mediterranean basin, Rome, Judea. Uh, it, they exported a great deal. And so the harvest wasn't as good. There was also in Judea at, at this time a um, uh, failed a, a lower harvest in 45. They also say that the year 45 was a sabbatical year, which would have diminished, if they were keeping it, they would have diminished, would have diminished the amount of grain available. Scholars discuss that idea back and forth because they don't think that even the Jews were keeping the sabbatical on, on a regular schedule. Uh, whether or not the Christians or the church would have been is unknown, um, you know, any more than their backyard plots, which is about all that we could do today uh, in terms of keeping a sabbatical year, seven-year cycle or whatever. But then if, they, so there, if, if that is ca the case, it was diminished, and then there was a, a critical failure in '46. And so it sets up, sets up a, um, a famine. And that, um, that's disastrous um, today and even more so back then because they didn't have the supply chains back then like we do today, but we still have famine in, the, in parts of the world today. The, the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine has exacerbated that during the last year. Uh, food supplies, especially in some of the, the developing nations of the world, but, but this took place uh, back then, and we, we know that for a fact that, that it happened. So it helps us to, to date the, the, this period of the story and also to rely upon Luke's um, narrative here as something that, that is of, uh, of truth. But notice what happens. The church, the disciples, gave according each to his ability and determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they did. And then they sent it by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And this is what happens here when you go, again, turn back over to chapter 12. And at verse 25 of chapter 12, it says, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they took with them John, whose surname was Mark. In the intervening, there's been a story of Herod, which we'll get to. But that picks up at the end of um, uh, chapter 12. Um, 11, verse 30, uh, where they, they sent this up by the elders to the hands of Barnabas and Saul. This is probably the second trip that, that Paul makes, and it's probably the one that he's referring to in the second chapter of Galatians, when he goes up after 14 years, the 14 years being from his conversion, to be understood. Uh, some commentators connect that uh, with Galatians 2 as being that this is that particular trip. There's also a thought that in Acts 22, where Paul refers to a vision that he has in the temple where God tells him to go to the Gentiles, get out to the Gentiles, in Acts 22, um, verse 18, and that that, 
Paul's referring to that particular visit that we're reading where he and Barnabas takes this relief offering up to Jerusalem. Now, we have to assume that when they took it up there that they just didn't drop it and go. They very likely stayed and helped in the distribution of it. And this begins to cement Paul's relationships with the Jerusalem church and the members and kind of washes away the years of the, his torment and his persecution. And so, you, again, we're not reading too much into it, I don't think, to realize that, that as he goes up with Barnabas, they're bringing relief. They're not bringing gold and silver. They're bringing corn, barley, wheat, grain, figs, dried, other dried fruits, and they're making sure that it gets, they stay there and they make sure it gets out. So it's quite, a, quite an effort that you have to understand would have taken place logistically, getting it up there, keeping it stored, making sure it was fairly evenly distributed, and in doing so, uh, good was done to the church. So we'll, um, we'll end it there, and in the next class, I want to draw some conclusions from this um, and finish this story of Antioch. Then we'll move into the story of Herod and uh, Peter uh, in chapter 13. So let's, uh, we'll break at this time and pick it up with, with the next class.